Dotnet Rocks episode 780 with guests James Kovacs, Mario Cardinal, Charles Max Wood, and Rob Danyo. Recorded live Wednesday, May 30th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey, uh, Vancouver, welcome to .NET Rock. <laughs> Supposed to make cricket noises. It was a simple gag, man. Sad. <laughs> I like. I like this better. It's more fun anyway. All right. Well, uh, we are here at Dev Teach in Vancouver, your hometown. Yeah. Welcome to my town. And we're at the Hilton Metro Town, which uh, I know because um, this is another funny story I have. Uh-huh. So I got to the airport and I looked up Hilton Metro Town on my brand new Lumia 900 and I looked it up using the map tool that's in there, the AT&T Navigator. Yes. And it said it was eight miles from the airport. That's wrong. That's wrong. Yeah, very wrong. So I was a little irate when my charge, you know, when we were driving through suburban neighborhoods and the guy's asking me what's the address and it's 20 minutes later and I'm thinking... He's taking me for a ride. <laughs> Canadians don't do that. Yeah. Well, anyway, so I, you know, took a picture of the number on the wall and the picture of his uh, license plate and stuff. And then I went and looked it up. And sure enough, the AT&T Navigator was wrong. So it, it, and it's an interesting question. Do you trust your phone more than you trust the person you're dealing with? No. Yeah, well, I think I obviously fell into that uh, into that category. Why were you using the ATT Navigator? Why don't you just use like the Bing Maps feature? Yeah, because I just got the phone. Okay. Yeah. So you're just figuring all this stuff out. Yeah, I you know I had an iPhone, so I would have gone to the Google Maps app, and uh, instead I found the Navigator app, which they charge for. And it's wrong. And it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we have an esteemed panel of people here. We're talking about uh, development methodology. Where are we? Let me let you introduce yourselves, starting with Mr. Mario Cardinal. Go ahead and tell us who you are and what you do. Well, um, from, a ma- from my accent, you will figure out that the English is not my first language. I'm from uh, Montreal, French-Canadian. Um, and basically what I've been doing, for, at least for the last two or three years, is helping organizations doing transition to Agile uh, framework. The, one, the, the, main, the main framework is Scrum and lately Kanban. And previously done lots of work around architecture. That's basically what I've been doing for the last 15 years, I would say. And there's this little uh, podcast that you do also. Yeah. For the for those of you who listen to that at Rock but also speak French, I've been doing now for eight, more than eight years a podcast in French. Mm-hmm. It's called Visual Studio Talk Show. So, And I remember like six, seven years ago, I went in, in New London uh, to see to see how you did your recording at that time. Because you know, in the early days, that was difficult to record a podcast. It now it's quite easy. I'm I'm having an application on my I, I, iPhone and I record it. Uh, but you know, in 2003, 2004, that was complicated. It was, yeah. And I'm looking forward to Mario providing foreign content for our show. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Syndication, baby. <laughs> we'll see. Okay, go ahead. Introduce yourself. All right, I'm Charles Maxwood. I have been a Ruby on Rails developer for the last six or seven years. Um, I am the host of the Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber podcasts. Um, I'm currently a freelance developer, which means that I take jobs and I either find other people to work on them or I work on them myself and uh, just make sure that the quality's there. But uh, yeah, before that, I, I, I worked at a few companies of various sizes and you know we use different methodologies that worked in different ways. So it should be an interesting discussion. Awesome. Rob? Hi, uh, Rob Dano. I've been in the industry for something like 20 years, as you can tell by the battle scars up here. Um, let's see, I've worn a, a bunch of hats over the years, uh, done everything from development to architecture. I was a director of architecture for Monster.com, uh, also manager of app development at Fidelity Investments most recently, 
a director of server applications at a company called Blue Metal Architects. We're based out of Boston. And then also proud to announce that I released a book on the Fowler series back in October of this last year called Service Design Patterns. Nice. So very glad to be here. Thank and you for also me. from Connecticut, right? Absolutely. Connecticut. Yeah. Yes. Home of insurance. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting. Yeah, lovely. And James. Uh, my name is James Kovacs. I'm a technical evangelist for JetBrains. Uh, we develop a wide variety of tools, many of which I'm sure you're familiar with. It, relevant to this discussion is a product called UTrack, which is for bug tracking, issue tracking, and we're also getting into some project management features. Uh, before I joined JetBrains, I was an independent developer architect. I did .NET, Ruby on Rails, and many other technologies. And I've worn the hat of team leads and architecture and development and have a wide variety of experience in the agile space. So we've got a fair number of agile advocates on this panel. Who's going to defend Waterfall? I think Rob said decide to I, do that. I, 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 I thought I would. I thought I would say I'd defend Waterfall, but then I thought it, it's it's almost like saying to my wife, "Yes, I'll watch the Kardashians with you." <laughs> so I, I'm going to backtrack on that just a little bit. Well, well I will defend. <laughs> Even if I'm doing transition to Agile, mm -hmm. there is obvious case where you know the Waterfall methodology makes sense. You know, Waterfall is basically plan driven. Right. It's been there for 2,000 years now. Yeah, you know, built an awful lot of stuff that way. And, you know, it's basic engineering. That's We've been trained this way that there's even, you know, organization that organize the, how you do project management. The mm -hmm. PMI. waterfall paintings on the caves in Altamira, I think. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but just to say that there is, if, if every, the requirements are all known up front, yep. and you know that they won't change, it's still cheaper to do a plan and to follow a plan. Because, mm -hmm. you know, applying Agile approach is a little bit more expensive because it requires much more ceremonies, much more event. So basically, if the requirement won't change, just do a plan. And it's well known. Yes. Okay. Well, and that's the key problem there is that it has to be well known. And the problem with software is it's all bits and bytes. So if you're doing something exactly the same as the previous project, you pop a different DVD in, you copy the sucker, and you're done. Which methodology <laughs> is less likely to fail? I think they're all equally likely to fail. So we're, we're getting better, but we haven't made huge progress from mythical man month. I think maybe one of the, the features of Agile or one of the outcomes is that there's, there's a higher degree of success because you are adapting to change so quickly and iterating so fast. There's a higher degree of visibility for sure, mm -hmm. and it's much easier to fail faster. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Right. Yeah. It lets you fail soon. <clears throat> so if that, you're getting off the tracks, I'd rather spend $10,000 and go, yeah, we're completely off the tracks, we're canceling the project, rather than spend $100,000 and realize that we built the wrong thing and it's going to be tossed in the trash. So Absolutely. therefore it's cheaper. Yes, it can be much cheaper. because so it's only cheaper if you fail. Yeah. <laughs> now you're putting words in my mouth. But, but, but really for me, the thing is, is that in a lot of cases when you're dealing with agile or waterfall or whatever, I mean, most of your problems are going to be with the people. Absolutely. And so when, you, when you're talking about agile, what this does is because it basically heightens your ability to communicate about the problem that you're talking about and you're bringing the stakeholders and stuff in, which is a huge mistake that a lot of people doing agile make is they don't bring the stakeholders in. Right. But anyway, because you're doing this, it also exposes the problems that you have with your people and team and allow you to adapt that way as well. So you can either help people change so that you're more efficiently handling the problems or you're uh, solving the problems by finding new people. I think there's assumption there that we weren't doing that before, though. You know, just because. But fundamentally, you know, it changes the relationship you have with mm -hmm. your client and your collaborators. In an agile mindset, it becomes very much a, uh, here's a problem, we're going to solve it together. It's collaboration, mm -hmm. as opposed to a waterfall where everybody signs off on requirements and it's very antagonistic. You're behind schedule, you agreed to do this, why aren't you living up to our contract that we've set? Which mm -hmm. was a pipe dream in the first place when it was written. Well, and it, we find, it feels like we get into environments where, you know, that, that approach is designed to make the developer lie. That, you know, you give me all these requirements. It includes how much time and how much money we're going to spend so that I actually don't get to choose anything other than either I quit or I lie to you and do this mm -hmm. and let, cause I'll fail later. 
Yeah, but with Agile, in a lot of cases, you just wind up lying about a shorter-term problem. Yeah. Lie yeah. early and often is what you say. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but ultimately, at the same time, I mean, it's, it's a two-week mistake instead of a two-month mistake yeah. is what we're talking about. And so it is less costly that way. And Agile, what, what it's going to bring on a table, it's going to make very explicit what are the dysfunction of your, of your, of your existing team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some people will feel comfortable changing, but there's still lots of people who find it very difficult to change their dysfunction because they feel that they are not dysfunction. For them, it's just the way to work. Like, for example, just having somebody who's working on six or seven tasks at the same time. This is not efficient. And, for example, if you're using an Agile board, this is going to be very explicit for the rest of the team that somebody is opening lots of tasks, not closing them, mm-hmm. and that is not really helping the team at the way it should. So the team, and there will be peer pressure for him to change, but if he doesn't want to change, it's not because you had Agile that he's going to be a better worker. It's, not, it's just going to continue his dysfunction. There's a great book that's been written about dysfunction, it's it's called uh, the dysfunction of a team. I think it's from uh, Len Shuni. Five Lin? Dis- dysfunctions of a team. The, the five dysfunction yeah. of a team, and the first one is the absence of of trust. And usually, you know, in those type of teams where there's dysfunction, people don't trust themselves. They don't even want to make explicit that there's problem. You know, there's an elephant mm-hmm. in the room, but nobody really talks about that. Yes, and agile is going to. At some point, force. And if you look at the big difference between Scrum and Kanban, well, there's major difference between them. But one of the major difference is that Scrum force a total change. It's really disruptive. So it, Scrum by default wants the dysfunction to disappear. At least it wants to give a chance to the team to start from new basement, new foundation. You're talking about the lack of trust. Do you think a lot of that is the people who stick their neck out and name it? The dysfunction are the ones that get sort of associated with that dysfunction. Sometimes. Yeah. And there's still the, the pressure from management to, to work outside of the agile process. You know, you give your estimates and they're always pressuring you to cut those estimates down. And, and yeah. we still have problems standing up for those estimates, I think. Well, they are just estimates, right? They are. I mean, the, the problem I think with as technical minds is that we tend not to be absolute. Yeah, that, that is possible because just about everything is possible. Mm. It may not be practical, but right. it's often possible. Well, and as developers, we often tend to be a very optimistic bunch. We Absolutely. give the best case scenario, not the expected scenario. And we all know, like my wife says to me, it's like, how's that, uh, how's that plural site production that you're doing right now? Mm. It's like, well, I'm a few days over time because I didn't expect for this to blow up or this record. Didn't expect the kids to decide to do a tap dance above my office. Right. <laughs> and that really came through. Like, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. And when you've got enough things that can go wrong, something will go wrong. And as developers, we tend not to plan for this. Sahil Malik characterized the two opposing forces in any project as the developer fairies versus the infrastructure ogres. <laughs> and that that just talks about the optimism that naturally developers think we can do it, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I, and that's interesting because operations often thinks more about the failures. What could possibly go wrong? How can we mitigate against mm-hmm. it? Have fallback plans? Whereas we as developers, it's like, well, we can do anything in software mm-hmm. just given enough time. Yeah. So here's the challenge with all this, I think. Now, we're, when we give estimates, they're, they're actually statements of probability. But what the customers really want are commitments right. and precision. And there's something that's still at odds here. Mm-hmm. With Agile, it's about adaptability, but uh, clients hear this, customers hear this, and they're saying, well, gee, that means we're going to bring it in, in on time, on schedule, and we can predict out way into the future. And we say, no, it's actually a little bit and less of that. Agile <laughs> gives us tools for doing that, the burn down charts and looking at overall velocity of the project, expected story points that we've got remaining. And so it allows us to project those and give it more confidence than just sort of a finger in the air. Certainly over short periods of times, but I often have to work with contracts that reach out for oh, two yes. years. So how do we, how do we reconcile those? It's like things? when you're downloading a file. Yeah. You know, it tells you how many minutes are left. For in the same number for a number of minutes. Exactly. You know? And as the closer you get to done, the more accurate it gets. Yeah, I do have to point out, I have a friend of mine that that worked for a company, and the way that they solved this problem was because the estimates were too high, they just raised the velocity. Solved the problem. 
<laughs> their, their timeline looked exactly the way they wanted it to. Well, and it, so here's the question, guys. Does going through these agile processes actually make us better as estimators, or does it just make people more comfortable with being late? <laughs> uh, it's a coping mechanism it, in it a is, way. Isn't it, it actually a coping mechanism? Yeah, I think you, it is. Because we have these sprints, we keep showing progress. It's nowhere near as much progress as we needed to make, but at least it's progress. It's about keeping people calm while you don't deliver. It depends on the team. I've seen teams where... Everybody knows the estimate's a bunch of crock. Mm -hmm. And so nobody invests in the estimates or tries to get better at it, and the estimates continue being a bunch of crock. Right. There are other teams that will look at what were our initial estimates, how long did it really take us, what is our actual velocity, and they get better at estimating. And when you, especially when you have cohesive teams working on similar problems or projects over a long period of time, right. they can get very good at estimating. But they also get... You, you did in the few cases I've found where people actually do that, where they're working on the same problem over and over again, they tend to get faster. Mm. And so their estimates yeah. are then off the other way. Mm. They, they start coming in soon because they actually knew they've done this before. But that seems to be so rare. We tend not to do the same thing twice. I also want to point out that I've noticed that as a, as a project progresses, the estimates tend to become more accurate. Mm -hmm. And that's because... As you solve more of the problem, the rest of the problem space becomes more clear. Right. And so the estimates become better that way as well. And so you'll see some of that phenomenon come up as the project progresses. But ultimately, one thing that I've seen is when you're talking about being late or not, again, it comes back for me with Agile to communication. And we're accurately communicating, here's where we are now, and here's where we expect to be able to be given the new information we have with the last sprint's work. I think that... You know, and your question just showed it, it made the case. Mm -hmm. Th there's a big misunderstanding between business and development team because in the major, in the major issue is that, you know, development team, we know that basically the only way we can solve complexity is by trial and error. Right. And you cannot plan trial and error. This is, you know, you try, you find what makes sense, you keep it, what doesn't make sense, you get rid of that and you, you work on that and you, you expand, and this is why at the end of the project, you know much more about it and you can be better at predicting, at least for what's, what the, the work still still needs to be done. But the management, this, they don't understand that we're dealing with lots of complexity. They think that our job is something that we can plan ahead. There's no risk. Or they, or they understand that risk now uh, with 40 or 50 years of unsuccess. They think that they understand that there's risk, but they don't, still don't agree that we deal with complexity and that we need another technique, not the plan-driven, but something which is based on trial and error. There's a great uh, TED, uh, um, Tim Offord, he, he did a, a TED presentation, 18 minutes, about the fact that our, in, our, in our actual world, we need to accept that everything should be, almost everything should be solved with a trial and error approach. Mm -hmm. And basically, he makes his point by saying, you, you all listen to me and you all say it makes sense to do that because it seems like it makes sense. But when is it going to be the time that you as a voter, you're going to accept to elect someone who is going to tell you, you know what, I'm just a human. I have no clue how I'm going to solve the complex problem that we face as a government. Right. But I'm going to try, keep what makes sense, and reject. And through trial and error, we're going to improve our system. Would you elect me? And basically, today... Unfortunately, people are not ready to vote. And this is why there's this big misconception right now in our organization. Management still believe that we can play the God's game. Being in a place of God saying we can predict everything. This is not true. And we as developer, we've learned hardly that we need to do trial and error. And unfortunately, it's very difficult to make sure that we have the, this overall conversation at the same level of abstraction or the same, the same way of understanding. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who want me to tell you all about Team Pulse. Is customer feedback at the heart of your development process? Are you looking for an easy way to integrate that feedback into your Microsoft TFS projects? Well, Telerik offers a simple and cost-effective solution to this problem. It's called the Ideas and Feedback Portal and comes as an extension of Telerik's agile project management tool, Team Pulse. The Ideas and Feedback Portal helps teams engage with external stakeholders like users or clients by capturing their feedback in the form of ideas, bug reports, feature requests, and votes, and allowing for a virtually real-time collaboration with your development team. 
feedback collected by the Ideas and Feedback Portal can easily be turned into requirements or bugs and synchronized with your TFS project for you and your team to work on. So from now until the end of June, Telerik offers a 10% discount for .NET Rocks listeners for any purchases of the Ideas and Feedback Portal. For more information, go to Telerik.com DNR, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Would you say that we need to develop a, a sort of intuitive side? Uh, do, do you use your intuition when you're estimating? I mean, if you do it a lot and you know somewhere back in your brain has a, a chart of, well, I made this estimate and I was a little bit off, so this time I'll go a little bit higher, a little bit, you know, after a while, you kind of figure out how much slop you need to add. And estimate are just, as they say, estimate. So this is why, for example, using the Fibonacci suite as as a way to, you know, Make sure that you, you, you have explicit number to select when you do an estimation. You know, the Fibonacci suite is, you, you can put as an effort only one, two, three, five, eight, 13, 20, 40. So basically, you don't ask people, is, is it 21 point or 22 point? The question is, is it 20 point or 40 points? So basically, it's easy for the team to rapidly say, this is 20 point because you want a, a, an overall consensus of the, the size of the effort of doing that type of work. So basically, you, you just want an overall estimate because spending more, many, many hours estimating is waste. Yeah. You want to do that rapidly without uh, spending lots of money. My, my favorite experience is working with a particular really smart developer who was also the CTO, sitting around the boardroom with the dev team, arguing over how to build this particular tool. And the CTO just sat at the table with a laptop and two hours into the meeting, pulled out a USB key and says, okay, I finished coding this now. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we oh, test wow. it or talk about it some more? Yeah. <laughs> I've been well, that and guy. People are realizing that the false sense of accuracy that you get from these very exact estimates, it, it is a form of waste. And many teams are not even moving to story points, but they're, they're moving to T-shirt sizes. <laughs> is this story a small, medium, large, or extra large? Right. Those are the sizes you get to choose right. from. Mm -hmm. And you know that you can fit so many medium stories into an iteration and you're done. And right. you I just got to yeah. say, this is not new stuff. I mean, no. this is stuff, you know, anyone remember function points? Yep. Yeah. It's the same approach. We're just, I thought you were going to say K-Lox for a minute there, and that was scaring me. <laughs> I mean, it's the same sort of stuff. But again, these are probability statements with, with some margin of error on either side. And, and we're having a difficult time, I think, still communicating the fact that there is this margin of error. Mm -hmm. and, and if I may, commenting on this trial and error thing, having been on the other side, being a person who manages developers and contractors, I don't want to hear, I'm going to see if I can make it because I got to make commitments yeah. to other people uh -huh. and I got my budget on the line and my ass on the line. So give me some understanding of, of what that margin of error is and what the probability of hitting it is and let me know sooner rather than later if things are looking like they're in trouble and then I can react. Well, right. that's so, one of the so real advantages of Agile yeah, yeah. is the frequent feedback cycles that as someone who has commissioned some work, you are doing Agile properly. You are seeing a partially built web page. You're seeing features. You're seeing the shopping cart added. Yes. Now you're seeing the catalog view. You're seeing real progress. Yes. You're not saying, oh, I've got the data layer built, but you have no idea whether it works because there's nothing that you as an external person can click right. through and try out. It's Absolutely. once again bringing the customer tighter into the feedback loop and giving them information to make reasoned decisions about the direction the project should go, how much money to spend, are we falling behind schedule and need to consider bringing on additional resources? How can we solve these things as a team rather than, I ordered this, why isn't this done? Yeah, two things that seem to be coming up over and over again. One is the risk, you know, how, that, that margin of error. And, and that needs to be built into the estimates, and I think a lot of times we miss that. Do you, do you tend to do uh, like a risk mitigation cycle? Like specifically mm -hmm. prosecuting that rather than saying, I'm not going to build a feature, I'm going to try and nail down some of this risk? I don't, I don't know. That is one technique to, 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 it used to be called kind of the risk cycle. Yeah. You focus on the high risk features first mm -hmm. and you stamp them out. So for example, thinking about security features first. Yeah. Uh, and, and matting those things down. Yes, absolutely. I mean, everybody just loves to do that up front. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you're right. It's, it's yeah. tackling the high architectural risk areas. If you know that you can accept a credit card, you don't really need to worry about, well, I can do MasterCard, but now can I do Visa and Discover and all the other ones? 
you do a mainline scenario on one credit card, get that mm. working, and now you move on to another portion of the application that's high risk because the rest is just filling in the blanks. Mm -hmm. And by hitting those major architectural features, you know that the overall application is going to hang together and you've reduced your overall risk. So as you, the project progresses, I wouldn't have an explicit risk mitigation phase, but hit those high-risk areas right. up front in those mm. first few iterations to make sure the architecture works at all mm. and can scale on real hardware and do everything that we need it to do. Take a vertical stripe out of the app to prove at least one execution path Absolutely. and then and fill in the horizon. that's a major anti-pattern that has happened on innumerable projects where you're trying to take horizontal slices. We'll build up the database. Now we'll build up a data layer that can talk to it. Now we'll build up the business objects. Now we'll build up a web services layer. And now we'll build the and UI. Oh, have, and the UI no. can't get the data that it actually needs to display. And now we're doing a rework on the entire stack. And you don't have anything to show for nine months. Exactly. Mm. I, one other thing that I've seen, though, that, that helps mitigate the risk um, especially in cases where you've already kind of blown your budget because of risk, is you, you have the retrospective at the end of your sprint or at the end of your cycle. And what that does is then you can sit down and you can say, look, you know, we estimated this as a small or a two or whatever you want to call it. And then you start looking at, but it turned out to be a, a, a 13, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you start talking about, okay, what happened here? What didn't we understand? What was wrong with our assumptions? Why Why are we so far off? And in a lot of cases, you can wind up mitigating a lot of the risk to come because you realize we really do need to think about this process over here that doesn't have anything to do with these other things or, or is deeply ingrained in this thing but not that thing and we didn't understand that it is ingrained in this other area over here. And this is why it's so difficult to build software. There's the technical challenge and as you said Having an architecture and managing or mitigating risk early, this is important. But there's another issue which is even important is the fact that more often than not, we don't build the, the, the real software that customer wants. And, in, and even in, in a domain where it's things, things seem very simple or, uh, for example, let's say you have customers say we want a way to uh, manage our customer. Customer list, you know, like Salesforce. But the, the problem is not that it's very difficult to build application. More often than not, it's because there's 40 stakeholders and none of them agree about what should be on this, in the screen. Right. So you know that in the screen there will be 30 or 50 field, but how do you manage that? And, and this is where it's very challenging. It's the fact that you just look at the stakeholders and say, well, could, could you make your mind please? And, we have, as developer, and this is why there's a specific role in Scrum for doing that, the, the product owner, we need to help or make sure that these conversations will happen on, on the stakeholder so that you'll figure it out what is the real need. And this is something where we we fail miserably. We, for the last 50 years, we've built more often than not the wrong software. It's a fundamentally a communication issue, not mm -hmm. a technology mm -hmm. issue. Gerald Weinberg said, do you remember the book you wrote about <laughs> consulting? No matter what they tell you, it's a people problem. And it's, and, it's, it's really the truth. And one and of his best books always. was yeah. Are Your Lights On? And the first thing that he said in his book, can you make sure that you build the right software? Because we're, we're very, very good at trying to solve problems, but we should maybe wait a little bit more and try to more understand what does the customer want. And this is why in, I, I love Agile because they force this conversation up front saying, well, you should express your backlog and user story and, and make sure that the conversation will happen on and on. Not one, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a couple of days but at the beginning of a project. Sometimes as a person, especially if you're coming in as a consultant, you don't understand the political power structure that's going on there. Mm -hmm. There may appear to be those people you think are the stakeholders, but the real power people may be in the background and more influential. So, Rob, yeah. what, everybody is saying this. Every These problems aren't n new problems. They've no. been around for a long time. But methodologies do evolve. Over the last six months, let's say, maybe a year to six months, what have been some of the breakthroughs in uh, Agile methodology that have started out sort of on the sideline and then be just become more mainstream? To One thing I find more interesting yeah. is... Uh, there was a, there's been a lot of interest in Scrum, and Scrum is a very useful agile technology and a s set of rules to work with. But teams are evolving to a more Kanban style of mm -hmm. approach, where you're pulling work through a pipeline and 
rather than having weekly iterations, you're looking at your overall flow. How right. long does it take for a request to come in from the business to having it out in production and optimizing mm -hmm. that flow and, and across the organization? It's the recognition that there's di there's different type of problem, and Kanban is very good mm -hmm. when you need to react very rapidly in terms of day. Because in Scrum, it's if, dynamic. If it's oh, very dynamic and fluid. This is why we say it's continuous flow. And Kanban is really, uh, uh, in, I would say, within the last 24 months, mm -hmm. the a new technique that the agilists are discovering. It's not new because Toyota has no. been using that in the in the for the last 20 years, and that's the reason why they are <laughs> they, they beat our the industry in the in North America, the car industry. But we we're discovering that, and we 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 find that oh. When they have this problem and, and that was difficult to use Scrum, let's use Kanban. And even some people these days are suggesting that in some case, there's some type of problem where we should mix Scrum and Kanban. They call that Scrumban. Mix in, a, in the appropriate way because this is Scrum very as, easy also to start doing Scrum bot and, you know, making, really destroying what is agile. Well, and the other, other interesting thing is that Kanban is much more broadly applicable. You can apply it to help desk, to how, how fast you can respond to tickets. Uh, you can apply it to uh, the IT infrastructure. You can apply it to development teams. But the other thing that I think Agilists are realizing is there's no one perfect solution. A good Agilist, a good Agile PM will pull parts. This part of Scrum really is going to work in this problem space, given the risks that we're trying to mitigate. This part of Kanban, the visibility, the board, the making sure there's not too many things in flight is going to work. Other parts are not. Yeah. And so it's a pick and choose. It's for, a buffet style. For example, in Kanban, if you have no clue on how you're going to technically solve the problem, Kanban is not good because Kanban presumes that you can make uh, specify the workflow. So it, you, you should know upfront how to solve the problem. So in this case, Scrum is much better because this is a framework where you can deal with this type of complexity. You're time boxing. Things. Yeah, you time box and you spike and you discover and again you inspect and adapt. So, but if you're doing something like maintenance, uh, you know, fixing bugs, Kanban is great because this is a very predictable uh, technical solution. I've, the thing I've seen happen really well with Kanban is this ability to visualize where the bottleneck is in the mm. flow. Mm -hmm. Like that whole board effect, you see it pile up. Like there's where the problem is. You get better at shifting resourcing around. But you're right. It's it's that like mixing Kanban with burn down. The other thing yeah. I really seems like to really sing. The other thing I really like about Kanban is it's a great way to start conversations. You've got a board up on the wall and a VP drops by and they say, how are you doing? And you say, there it is. There it is. Yeah. Don't bother can, the people. Look not, at the bits of you're paper. You're not pulling up a web page. You're not going through a tool. You've got physical things on a board that that person can take off, look at, rearrange, mm -hmm. and have a conversation with you. And that's what Agile is all about. So not a conversation with the team, a conversation with the stakeholders. It's a conversation with between the team and the stakeholders yeah. and having them understand some of the challenges. Like Often, I've found in many Agile projects, the problem isn't the delivery rate of the team, but the team is getting bottlenecked on the business users being double-timed. Okay, you're supposed to be verifying functionality in the new system. You're also helping to specify what the existing functionality is, and you're doing your normal job. Right. So... <laughs> Where the bottleneck is, is actually in acceptance of the work that's already been done. And that ends up piling up in the Kanban And it's not board. that guy that's, it's not that guy looking at the board and saying, yeah, I know I'm holding that up. It's his boss looking at the board and saying, I need to get that guy more time, right? right. Maybe unload some work. Mm -hmm. You know, this is where this whole thing's slowing down because I can't get enough stakeholder cycles, which you can argue blue in your face, but something about post-it notes that just make that work. <laughs> yes. And, and the, the beauty A little of, hard to scale, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the beauty with yeah. visual control board, like what Kanban is suggesting, and now more and more Scrum team are using, you know, board to make visible the, the process. Uh, what the beauty of that is that you know, in your large organization is just, the problem is not just the stakeholder have difficulty to do their part. There's also a lot of bottleneck because the way the organization is organized. Like, there's enterprise architecture that want to do review and, you know, signing off. There's a security group that needs to sign off. There's the, 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 the formal project management group that needs also to have their go, no go. So you put them in a Kanban board and you can easily show to the management, well, here's the bottleneck. The, the, the architecture team is, has been waiting for two months before having their review. So everything has been sitting there for two months. Mm -hmm. 
So you can, and you can even price that. Say, well, this delay, if you know every day how much it costs not to deliver the software, is the amount of money that, that worth having a, a enterprise architecture. Well, does it, is it, what, is it a good ROI? Mm-hmm. And now you can have nice or good and good discussion at the, the enterprise level about do you want to keep your enterprise group this way? Maybe it makes sense or maybe you'll find another way to, uh, to make sure that the goal that they pursue will be satisfied, but without interrupting the, uh, the agile team. That's, that's definitely one thing that I've noticed with a lot of the, the conversations that I've had to have with different stakeholders is if, if you're talking about time, a lot of times they don't really care. I mean, you, you start talking about, you know, the complexity of the problems or the, the feasibility of getting things done and whatever. But the second that you can convert that to time and then to dollars, mm. oh man, their Absolutely. ears perk up and it's like, Absolutely. it's like, oh my gosh. So what you're saying is this is costing us how many thousands of dollars every day? And, and that's not even from the standpoint of the developer time. I mean, you start talking about money that they're losing, money that they're not bringing in. And yeah, they really, really get that. And you're, you're speaking their language because that's what they care about. Guys, uh, this is a, a pretty unique situation because we, we have to do a giveaway. Oh, that's a shame. And what we've done is we've signed up the entire audience to be .NET Rocks fan club members. Which is a cover idea on our part because it means we get to draw from the audience. Someone here gets to win. That's really amazing. And all you guys who are signing up are going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Even if you don't win, right? Yeah. All right. Because you could win next show. Uh, and one of the interesting things, so solving the problem, and now we have a list of names of everyone who's here. Without looking at that list, Carl wrote a number down, and we counted out that many names. We felt that was random enough. And so, and what are we winning today? Uh, this is a, t- I'm sorry. Is there opposition this is, to this the This is really agile. As it a, is very as a, agile. As a way of operating. We, uh, we make an awful lot of shows and we do a lot of live and you saw us wire everything up on the fly and figure out what parts work together. We're an agile bunch here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So the winner of the Telerik Ultimate Collection, which is $7,000 worth of software that they sell for $2,000 is Lori Crepas. Lori, uh-huh. it's our winner. That, that right. is that is definitely a, a software estimate, where yeah. where seven thousand dollars worth of software for two thousand yeah, dollars. Absolutely. Uh, so, Lori, uh, just you need to give us your email address uh, sometime before we leave today. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about with the .NET Rocks fan club, just go to .NETrocks.com, click on the big "Get Free Stuff" picture, which is on the upper right hand corner, and uh, answer a few questions. You'll be in the fan club. And every, we're going to give away something every show. And every December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of hand-picked technology. We don't know what it will be, but it'll be awesome. And, 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 and uh, we, we can see that you're getting bigger, guy. Because I remember yeah. in 2004, you were giving, um, you know, um, a cup of, uh, for a cu- coffee? How do you say that yeah, in English? Coffee cups. Coffee yeah. cups, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we still give those away to anybody who sends us email that we read on the show. So, or leaves a comment. So, Richard, you have a, a tweet. Uh, this is from Martin Doms, who asked the panel, uh, guys, is there any actual hard evidence in favor of one methodology over another based on real research, or is it all gut feelings and anecdotes? There's been a lot of research done. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, uh, Microsoft has done research. There's been a number of other uh, professors at universities who... It is difficult to get some of these things. Is how well does Agile work compared? Right. But we've also got a lot of evidence from Toyota right. and their production system and how that can be applied. So the research exists out there. If you read some yep. of the well-known Agile authors, their works are very well cited. Well, how do you guys use this data, right? Like I'm thinking you're coming into a company who's considering a methodology change, probably means they've had a major project disaster of some kind. And so this is in consideration. Aren't they going to push you on? Give us the hard numbers. Like show us what's going to work. There is our number because, uh, for example, Sylvie Trudel. So in English, it will be Sylvie Trudel. She, <laughs> she, she wrote a great book lately on, about agile development. She's been doing for the last almost 20 years study of productivity of software development team. And she's, she's using functional function point to measure the productivity. Hmm. And she was doing that in the nineties. And you know, it, you, at some point they figured out that, oh, it's almost the same type of productivity from team to team. Mm-hmm. And beginning of 2002, she, she, she joined a team 
where the productivity was like three times the, the, the other productivity. And she asked the team, what are you doing? Oh, we're using this technique called extreme programming. So what is that? Then they explain a little bit. Say, oh, interesting. So in 2004, she, she found another team where there was much better productivity. They were using Scrum. Another team were using extreme programming. And overall, over the, from 2003 to up to 2007, 2008, she discovered that all these teams, some of them were like 13, 20, 20 times better than the other team. Hmm. And overall, now she, she, she's coaching. Now she finally decided to move and do only agile because for them, that was like a full proof that there's something there. Uh, but overall, she discovered that even the the very, very, very bad team or the worst team, there's even a ratio of 40 to 1, 40 times. And, you know, wow. there's measure that, that says that from the developer to another one, you, there's some developer who are 40 times better than the other one. Mm-hmm. Seems there's the same team, the same, the same patterns happen for team. Hmm. So, this, they, and this is very interesting. And again, she, she decided to, to move to agile because for them, the number were there. And uh, and this is quite interesting to see. And in it, it's unfortunately the book she wrote is in French, but in the book <laughs> she, she referred to. There's lots of great works that being done by the uh, agile community, the French agile community around the agile. And uh, and there's uh, there's number in the book which uh, are quite uh, impressive. There's certainly empirical evidence that's been around for quite a while mm-hmm. on the value of smaller co-located teams. That's, mm-hmm. In fact, I think there was a study with Microsoft that showed that the uh, productivity and effectiveness of teams, even when you start moving them to different floors, starts to decrease. And mm-hmm. obviously, when you start spreading them out across the world, it goes down. The closer more. they are together, the more efficient Yeah, I mean, it's just are. common sense. You're sitting there with someone, you can look at them and go, hey, can you look at this? Can you help me with this? What do you think of that? So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Well, and and Lynn Lang, it's hidden in here somewhere, but she dropped me a note as well. It just said, do you, you guys have a sense of what the level of agile development adoption is in the .NET world? In the .NET, .NET world? Yeah, it's a, that's a tough number to figure out because, well, I mean, obviously, as guys who are working in Agile, everybody you talk to is working in Agile. Well, yeah, and th- there's the number of companies I've been into where I've been brought in as a consultant, and it's like, we're doing Agile. And it's like, okay, how are you Agile? We stand up for our meetings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites, when you're supposed to have stand-ups and everyone sits down. Right. I love yeah. that one. <laughs> I, I want to go back to the numbers thing just for a second because I think – for most teams, the most important numbers are the ones that you're collecting on your team. And mm-hmm. I really think that uh, if one of the things that you notice when you start doing Agile is that you start you start collecting these numbers, you start paying attention. We're getting so many stories done, we're doing so many other things where in a lot of cases, uh, the company before that wasn't doing Waterfall, they weren't doing Agile, they were doing Ad Hoc. Yeah. And, um, and so the, they really didn't know what they were getting done. You know, they were just either meeting their deadlines or they weren't. And so they start measuring it and they start to improve that way. And so if you try a certain methodology, you, you give it a few weeks to kind of, you know, become a part of your process and you're measuring that. And then you start adding new features in, which is kind of uh, an agile way of doing agile, I guess. Um, then you'll really get, you know, oh, these numbers improved. Well, a lot of that is uh, the notion of retrospectives and being an introspective team. What pro- what is working? Let's keep doing that. What is not working? Where are our risk factors? How can we mitigate those? Are there techniques we can pull from the Agile playbook to deal with some of these risks? If we're seeing a high bug count, okay, well, maybe we can look at pair programming so we basically have real-time code reviews happening. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are already doing pair programming, well, 
doing code reviews line by line is probably not a good reuse of your resources because you've already had that. But you might want to do overall architectural reviews to make sure you've got a good trajectory in terms of how you're progressing in the application. Or drug testing. But continuous integration. You don't know you need to solve those problems unless you're paying attention to them. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Continuous integration. Yeah. yeah. I, that's, I mean, if there's one thing you were to ask me, could you live without? I'd say I could never live without continuous integration. And, re and remember yeah. that in 2003, yeah. when uh, Ken Beck wrote the book, and he said you should integrate daily, you know, constantly. What was the, the, feed the feedback that people, people thought were it was impossible? That's, oh, that's crazy. Impossible. It, it is a life changer. And you well, and the interesting you thing have the fastest feedback loop daily, constantly across all the team. The I compiler is the ultimate failure test, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing about CI is you can have, it's a very easy, it's a gateway drug to better practices. Mm -hmm. Because I can, I work for JetBrains, I, we build Team City, <laughs> we love it, okay? Um, I also Full run. Full disclosure. Yeah, yeah. And I run, I one of the admins on uh, teamcity.codebetter.com, which hosts uh, the vast majority of open source projects in the .NET and other spaces. So I've got a lot of experience with CI. And just getting a project set up and compiling, like forget about running tests or any metrics on it, that's like a five to 10 minute operation. 10 mm -hmm. minutes if you don't have a server set up yet. Mm -hmm. It's honestly that fast. And just getting that confidence that every single thing that goes into source control does actually even compile is one level of confidence. And then you kind of go, oh, that's making me feel better. Now, if we start adding in some testing, some acceptance tests, mm -hmm. some overall, uh, some unit tests, I have that next level of confidence. Now I can start looking at putting on some metrics. Do we have code duplication creeping in? And you gradually build up an appropriate CI environment for your project that gives you a huge amount of confidence to refactor your code and make your project better and deliver on time at a repeatable pace. We're talking about tools, and, yeah. and I don't want to derail the conversation, but in the context of what we're talking about, you know, when, when, you're th when I think about a Kanban board, I think that's just dying to be a dynamically changing app on a screen, on a big television somewhere, mm -hmm. rather than post-it notes. Mm -hmm. So what are some of your favorite tools that uh, you've been using, uh, not just in, with Kanban, but Agile and, and uh, that, you know, that the people need to know about? Tools you can't live without. You can't live without continuous integration. I consider that a tool, mm -hmm. but yep. maybe software tools as well. Yeah. yeah, well, for me, continuous integration is a wider view on testing in general. And uh, so in the Ruby community, we have very mature testing tools. And in fact, typically for most people that are doing things kind of the Ruby way, and I'm doing air quotes for those that can't see me, um, basically you have a very tight testing loop. And when I say very tight, I mean if you're not getting response within like a minute, it's too slow. So you're doing TDD. You write the test, you write the code, as soon as you've written the code, you run your test suite, and literally, if you're not getting a response back within about a minute, minute and a half, then people start talking to you about how you can speed up your test suite. And I see a lot of people in the Ruby community, I found this absolutely hilarious, a lot of people in the Ruby community that are bemoaning the fact that Rails has a three-second startup time, and that's slowing them down. Hmm. They yeah. want their test, they're in a large portion of their test suite that matters to them right at this moment to run in a few hundred milliseconds at most. Mm, yeah, Whereas yeah. in the .NET space, it, we start getting worried if it gets over 10 minutes. But it, Rubius, yeah, they, we like this really tight testing loop because, and I've seen people who actually live this and they've done screencast where literally it's make a small code change, run your test, make a small code change, run your test. And it's just this fluid back and forth and back and forth rhythm that you get into that's incredibly productive and instills this incredible amount of confidence to do crazy things in your code that make it better. Yeah, it, it, it goes right back to this trial and error thing that you're talking about. I mean, you know if you screwed it up. Now, sometimes you do have to spike. You have to go outside of TDD, write the code, do some exploration, and then figure it out. But then you come back. You always come back and put it right under tests. And the thing is, is the refactorings, the, the reworks, any new features, anything at all, you know it works because you have a test on it. We, we, we need to do a better job in helping people write good tests, however. Mm. Yes, I, so I don't think people, I mean, we just say, okay, great, red, green refactor. Okay, where, where do I start? How do I write a good test? Most people concentrate on the happy path. 
Mm-hmm. And and for me, the more important thing are the negative cases, mm-hmm. right? So boundary tests, uh, overflows, whatever the situations are. It takes and, a certain mindset. It, there are certain people in a group yeah. that are really good at making tests that make you mad. They're the mm-hmm. ones that tormented animals when they were younger. <laughs> <laughs> I love the people, too, who do the, the red-green next feature. One thing, what it, it's sure that, you know, Ruby's community is showing a lot where we, the, the industry will head up in the, in the long term. But, you know, for the type of consulting that I'm doing in the .NET community, they don't have the same level of maturity, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, for example, a, a tool that I will suggest if they are still using Team Foundation uh, 2010, there's no real agile board. And one, one product which is great is Urban Turtle for doing that. It's so good that even Microsoft decided to copy it and integrate in the next uh, something equivalent in the next release of, yeah. the, uh, of Team Foundation Server, the, the 2012. I presume this is the name it's going to be. So, uh, and this really helped a, a team. And even be, it's not technical practical uh, practice. This is, those are more management practices, but th- those are very important because just by using this simple management practice or agile practice. Easily, some team, team will get two times better. Mm-hmm. And so two times means 100% improvement. For any peop, uh, manager, if you say, hey, I can improve your, the, the performance of your team by 100%, I've never seen a manager who say, I don't want to hear you. Because for them, uh, you know, 100 is great. It's like, wow. You double your money. Yeah, you double your money. And so basically, and that's, that, that's, this is why there's so much, so many, and that's not only small, but big organizations that are, that are migrating to Scrum and agile practices because they want to have this two to one uh, uh, improvement in their performance of their team. Mm-hmm. Guys, uh, another tool that uh, sort of on a different tack to go with Chuck's comment is the Ruby community does have this rich suite of testing tools. One of the best books that I've read, whether you're a Rubyist or a .NET developer, is the RSpec book. It's all in Ruby, but the ideas that they espouse in how to test and the way to test an outside-in style of development, you can use the equivalent tools in .NET. Very commonly in the Ruby world, we'll specify the overall feature, the acceptance criteria, using a language called Gherkin, and we execute it using a framework called Cucumber. So we use Cucumber, and then we'll TDD out the inner loop with RSpec. We can do exactly the same thing in the .NET world. There's an amazing tool called SpecFlow, which bundles into Visual Studio. It's completely open source and free. Allows you to write in this Gherkin language, which is to all intents and purposes, English, just in a, a, D, a DSL, you say given, when, then. Yeah, your boss your can even write English. Yeah. yeah, and then you actually then do the interloop TDD using something like NUnit or MSpec or some other framework like that. But and it's, it's possible. We, in we've done space. a show on SpecFlow, and you know, for those who are listening, go back in the cataloging. Yeah, SpecFlow is an awesome project. And, and TDD is not mandatory for doing you know, SpecFlow. You could use SpecFlow just to do your high-level uh, testing and still, pro- if you, for example, if you don't have the architecture to be able to use mock and dependence injection so that in .NET you could do TDD the correct way, you could still use SpecFlow at least at the. You'll have those functional tests express early, uh, and uh, and you could still continue programming the old, the the, the, the not, I won't say the wrong way, but uh, a non-infective way, way, which is uh, unfortunately the the way too many organizations are doing today. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's a journey, so you cannot change your your practices all all at the same time. You change once every month or every six months. And uh, SpecFlow is probably something that a lot of organizations should, should take a look at. Are there any good online Kanban board tools? Trello is pretty good. Mm-hmm. What is it? Yeah. Trello, T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Okay. Uh, it's by the Fog Creek folks. And um, that it gives you a basic Kanban board. You can add additional columns if you want. You can yeah. move task cards. You can categorize it. Is there, is there an API so we can hook it into you know TFS or whatever we're using? Uh, I haven't looked. If, if you want to do Kanban over TFS, the latest version of Urban Turtle allow you to have multiple uh, multiple swim lanes. Urban Turtle. Yeah. Love uh, it. Sorry, you know, <laughs> my pronunciation is very bad. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and from JetBrains, uh, the next version of Utrack that we've announced is going to have a Kanban-style board mm-hmm. incorporated into it as well. So that's coming. So there's a lot of tools available. Uh, there's other, I'm trying to remember, the. there's another Agile Zen is yeah. another tool that's very useful for Kanban and very highly thought of. So yeah, the tools right there. Kanban is going to be big because even Microsoft, they recognize that 
they will need to support that in their tool in the long mm -hmm. run. So it, it, it's, this is a natural practices that nobody could afford to miss. The other thing I noticed people are doing is it's very useful, especially if you've got a co-located team, to have the wall with all the sticky notes and be able to move things around physically. But then a PM or Scrum Master will sync that with the electronic tool so that it can be archived and it can be shared by the wider team. And it's not a, a huge imposition to do a one-day, once-a-day sync. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get the physical, tactile, move things around, but then you have the electronic ease of manipulation. Because there's always a case where you cannot be at the office a certain day and you want at least to participate with the rest of the team. So the, uh, the electronic version of the software is, is also important. Guys, I want to sag a little bit here. Uh, just get your thoughts on the DevOps movement as sort of an extension of Agile. Mm -hmm. Who wants to start? Boy, there's a lot of uh, a lot going on with the the Ruby community there too, with things like Chef and Puppet mm -hmm. that uh, really kind of drive that. It 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 depends really on on who you talk to, um, and depending on what you're doing, you you may or may not want kind of a more um, well grounded IT person. But uh, you know, in a lot of cases, it's removing the barriers because you effectively have these recipes and things to where you can just. You know, you, you have a requirement and you literally just go get the recipe and then you put it on the machine. I mean, it, it's as simple as that. And so it, it lowers the barriers and it moves a lot of these things out of the way that your development teams couldn't handle before. It opens a lot of doors that way and, and allows you to adapt. Uh, absolute required reading is the Netflix tech blog. Right. Uh, it is fantastic because Chaos they've monkey. got a huge DevOps and they collect statistics and they're very transparent on how mm. they've scaled up in EC2, some of the challenges they've had. They remove some of the Y axis numbers so you can't tell what they're doing, but they show you overall the traces yeah. and how they're doing some of these things and some of the technologies mm. they've spun up to deal with these large DevOps problems mm. and make them more responsive and make their systems more resilient especially going to a cloud-based architecture, are absolutely fascinating reading. Well, they're talking about pushing out 10 deployments a day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Like that, you know, we're talking about continuous integration and, and actually getting a build to QA several times a day. We're talking getting all the way to the end of the deployment chain yeah. several times a day. One of the most yeah. fascinating things that, in my opinion, that Netflix does is the whole notion of the chaos monkey and the chaos gorilla. Yeah. yeah. Have you not heard it. of it? I love so, it. I love so, it. Yeah, yeah like the chaos monkey. I have been a chaos monkey. I have gone <laughs> into the rack and unplugged the yeah. network cable mm -hmm. to see if we went down. I mean, the, yep. cool, the cool thing here is that fail. Okay, so the chaos, what the chaos monkey does is it is a service that runs in Netflix cloud on EC2 and randomly kills off services, which is just a bizarre concept. You're going to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> intentionally inflict pain. But what that means is that all your development teams are used to dealing with failure. Because when you're dealing at Netflix-style scales, you're going to have failure. Yeah. So you have fallback mechanisms, back-offs, uh, breaker switches, and all kinds of other things. So that's the chaos monkey. It's killing off individual services, like the recommendation service for a particular area. The Chaos Gorilla takes down entire servers. It'll just nuke an entire VM. <laughs> and it'll just, it's just nice. gone. It's off the network. Remember and when so you had that server? Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> and, and so then you're it beats used, its so, so the infrastructure is written in such a way that it's used to dealing with fa failures. And because of that, when you have a real failure, it's resilient to that. I have seen where uh, other major services like Photobucket that host on EC2 have gone down. They're unavailable because of some infrastructure failure at EC2, uh, at Amazon, and Netflix, I can still watch streaming video. I can still get my recommendations. They might not be personalized to me, but they provide me some results. They're running. The most yeah. popular mm -hmm. movies, mm -hmm. and I can still watch streaming services. This, this is a really interesting thing to me because, you know, in the past, you know, we're, we're supposed to architect for failure. Mm -hmm. But that requires us to have the omniscience, in a way, to predict where the failures might be. And quite often in my experience in running production systems, there are certain things that happen out there that we could have never predicted. And it's through certain events that happen concurrently that cause failures in other things. So, so this, mm -hmm. this chaos monkey thing is just, it's awesome. Yeah, well, I think the, the most majorly publicized yeah. Amazon failure yeah. was when they traced it back and they talk about it on uh, both the Netflix blog and Amazon also had some good posts on it. It was a failure of the control backplane in one of their data centers that got overloaded as they got into a 
a spiraling network condition. You think it's the like, Chaos Gorilla got a call? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, who would have predicted that? And if you're deploying on that architecture, you're probably not planning for that. But because you're... Netflix is used to dealing with these oh. intermittent failures of servers just disappearing and reappearing. They can handle that, and those scenarios. In the long run, customer will expect system to, to behave against these types. So I'm pretty sure that in 20 years from now, a place where a system could go down for, I don't know, let's say just one minute and, not, and the application don't behave correctly, customer will just say, what is that crap? And we know today that it's not a minute. It's maybe hours and lots of organization where they, they don't have, uh, so, it, and so in the long run, what we've seen with consumer's deployment is going to be mandatory for every organization. Unfortunately, today, there's too many places where they have not the infrastructure or the, the knowledge for doing that. It is, the good news is that in, on, anyway, everything will move to the cloud in the long run. So that will force uh, these type of organization to disappear at some point. Mario, I'm afraid you're going to have to have the last word, except that I have a new name for my band, uh, <laughs> Chef Puppet Cucumber. <laughs> so, I like Ain't to got thank- no R spec. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank the panel, Mario, Chuck, Rob, and James. Give them a big round of applause. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Tottenham Rock! Hey, thanks for listening. Remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a